Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. In this week's podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dr. Juhi Tandon. Juhi is a GP, she's a medical director, and she is the co-founder of The Cognitant Group. I met Juhi at the MedTech World Conference in Malta, and we found ourselves sitting next to each other at dinner in the evening, and we just had the best conversation. She's really inspirational. And I just thought she'd be a perfect guest for the Business of Healthcare podcast. We talked about her journey and introduction into the world of medtech, which started off attending a conference. Juhi works with three other co-founders. So I asked her what a good partnership looks like. We talk about the fear of failure and sometimes fear of making decisions. We talk about the balancing act of her being a clinician, her being a co-founder, medical director, wife and mum. And when it comes to the Cognitant Group, which is a platform and global provider improving patient outcomes through personalised patient-centric health information and support. We talk about the importance of tone of language and being able to present information in a way that's not dry and boring and in a way that is going to be engaging and information that people want to receive and the future of that space. So I absolutely loved it. I know you're going to enjoy it too. I would love it if you share it and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Business of Healthcare podcast, Juhi. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited. The reason why I wanted to bring you on to the podcast is that we met in Malta at the Health Tech Conference and we were sitting next to each other at dinner and we were just like yapping away. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, you need to <laughs> I come remember on. It. So would you be able to explain to our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Certainly. So I'm a GP. I've been a clinician for almost 18 years and four and a half years ago, I co-founded Cognitant Group, which is a health technology company, really on a mission to democratize health information and make it more accessible for people so that they can better understand their health and have better health outcomes. I'm the medical director there. So basically I do that three days a week and I am GPing sort of one to two days a week largely locuming and with my women's health app, doing coils and implant fittings, and also doing remote telemedicine from home. 
Is it important to you that you stay an active GP, given that you are a co-founder of a growing organisation? Definitely. I've always wanted to be a GP. And I think the idea of preventative proactive care was something that I felt very passionately about from day one at medical school. And I think that actually being a GP and working on the front line, understanding not only the patient's perspective, but also the clinician's perspective of what's going wrong, why there's a breakdown in healthcare services and why we're so overwhelmed, actually provides a great insight into the health technology world. And when you're trying to solve a problem, you need to know both sides of the coin. I think that's what's quite nice about staying in practice. I know firsthand what the issues are. Who is your other co-founder? Who's the other side? Who's your partner? Sure. Well, I've got three, actually. There's four of us co-founders. And one of them is quite a well-known name in the health tech uh, world, Dr. Tim Ringrose. He used to be the CEO of Doctors.net UK and the COO, um, Daisy Allington, and the CTO, Rick Knowles. They worked with Tim at Doctors.net UK, and Rick was actually the CTO of Doctors.net UK. So we've got quite a clinically-led, technologically-led, and life sciences-led team, really. And how did you all meet? That's an interesting story. So I always thought I would just be a doctor. I never really had any idea that I would end up in health technology or digital health. I was on maternity leave in 2015. And my non-medic husband sort of said to me, oh, you know, you should think outside the box. He subscribes to Wired magazine, the tech magazine. They're launching a health event, Wired Health, in March. You should go to it. And I very nearly didn't go, but actually that changed the trajectory of my entire career by going because I went and I felt completely inspired. Cutting edge technology meets healthcare, meets innovation from all over the world, exciting speakers. It was really inspiring. And I thought, wow, I'd really love to be involved in this. So I went every year, basically, since then, since 2015. And it was 2017 that I met Tim. I just basically went up to him because I'm quite open and talk to everyone. And I recognized his name because I used to, I called it spam mail. I said, I used to get spam mail from you um, when I was a medical school um, student. And that's how we got talking because he was obviously medical director then of Doctors.net UK. So yeah, we just started talking. And about six months later, he sort of came to me and said, he's got this rough idea. And the four of us basically came together and, and decided to really try and impact patient education because we felt that, you know, Immersive technology, virtual reality, augmented reality, gaming was being used in healthcare, both for therapeutics and for medical education. So if you talk about, you know, radiologists using it to learn about radiology and certainly interventional radiology, or if you talk about medical therapies like treating anxiety with VR or pain distraction with virtual reality, all these immersive technologies were being used for that aspect, but not for patient education. So we kind of thought, well, actually, picture tells a thousand words. Imagine what immersive tech could do for people's understanding of their health. And that's how we came together. Is what you are doing unique? Is anything ever truly unique? But have you spotted a gap in the market which is untouched? I think so. I think, look, what we have at the moment is we have an aging population with multiple long-term conditions. We have the internet, which has complete information overload but a lot of misinformation as well. We have mixed into that low literacy and language barriers and global migrations increasing. So there's limited English proficiency. And then you add into that doctors don't have enough time to actually deliver preventative and meaningful education in their 10 minutes. And so what we're trying to do is really streamline timely, accessible and impactful education to patients at the right time in their journey. 
So I don't think there's any platform that not only will host the entire library that we host, so we host not only our own content that we create, but also we partner with the NHS, the A to Z library with over 75 charities, multiple content formats, so text, audio, video, animation, ORCA approved apps. So it's a bit like that platform is the Google, but of reliable, trusted health information. So it's validated. It's somewhere that either a patient can go to and know that it's all trusted. They're not going to go down a rabbit hole of this information. And it's a library that clinicians can go to to curate, a bit like Netflix, you know, curate a personalised prescription for the patient. Who is your customer? So we have two arms. One is the content creation, which we do with a combination of the NHS and industry partners. So that will be the life sciences companies. We also are funded through various grants like SBRI and Innovate UK. In terms of the platform where it all sits, the customer will be the NHS ICSs who okay. will buy it by a localised library of Healthy Note, which will encompass all the services and health information that meet their population health needs. ICSs are the customer, I suppose. Okay. What's your role as a medical director? Actually, what did you think it was going to be? And yeah. then what actually is it? <laughs> right. So it's interesting. My role has evolved because when we started, we were much smaller. We were only four of us and then that grew to 10, 12. Now we're 27, five years on. So when I started, I was much more, you know, ubiquitous across the entire sort of company. So I'd work with the content team and the medical writers and the storyboarding of a lot of the content. I'd work with the business director to basically collaborate with industry partners and pitch to them. I would work with my CEO to talk to the NHS. I would work with our marketing team to do a lot of the PR. Now, as we've grown and we've now got you know, a clinical director and a clinical safety officer to do a lot of the content side of things, my key role is really medical leadership of all the digital programs and stakeholder engagement with the NHS, with charities, and also to form strategic collaborations with other digital innovators that are already embedded within the NHS to see if we can you know, work together. And then obviously another part of it is evidence generation. So I recently completed the Digital Health London Evidence Generation Bootcamp which was really insightful. And now it's really about collating the right evidence because that's what you need to prove to NHS commissioners in terms of return on investments. A lot of my role is now around developing that side of things and then eventually adoption and scaling in the NHS. And how many clients do you currently have? So in terms of industry clients, I think we've got about eight or 10, something like that. In terms of the NHS, we are working with 10 NHS foundation trusts, creating digital programs to help educate around particular therapy areas. And then on top of that, we're partnered and integrated with eConsult. So that's obviously the online GP triage platform and about 2000 practices are using HealthyNote currently to prescribe health information. It's really cool. So when you very first started, what were the questions you were thinking of? I'm currently on maternity leave. This seems really interesting. I've got a fantastic opportunity, but I love being a GP and I've got a life. <laughs> like, yeah. What were you weighing up? What were the risks and things that you were considering before you took the leap into this new business venture? Well, a few things. I mean, one, I'd never done anything like this before. I've just always been a medic and I never thought I'd use those skills elsewhere. I think the other thing was obviously knowing that I'd have to cut down general practice to then proceed with this venture and, you know, how confident I was with that and how nervous I was also cutting down my NHS work. 
because that's all I've ever known. That was like the security blanket. That's what I know. That's what I do. I know it really well. I've never owned a business. I've never been part of a startup. So there was a lot of apprehension about it. But as my husband keeps telling me and other inspirational leaders, it's about having a growth mindset and not being afraid to fail and just going for it. Because if you don't try, you'll never know. The thing that got me through was I really believed in the idea. I really was like, well, how much impact can I have with patients in 10 minutes? I've learned and I've been learning for 20 years. I've been in education, you know, training to be a doctor. But 10 minutes is really hard to deliver the impact that you want to deliver when you've got so many competing interests in that 10 minutes. And actually the idea of being able to, you know, use my knowledge and skills of what patients need on the front line, what clinicians are lacking to create something that could not only drive NHS efficiency, but actually really be good for patients to empower them to better look after their health. And there was just so much passion behind it. That I thought I've got to do this. And also it was nice to use the creative part of my brain. Medicine can sometimes be a bit rote learning. You're in a box, you've got protocols to follow and you can't really think creatively that much. So it was nice to be able to do that. So when we went to the MedTech conference, like what brought you there? Obviously you go to conferences, but what were you looking for in choosing to go to that conference? So I was actually invited as a panelist. The panel was around patient centricity and giving patients a seat at the table. So I was sort of bringing my two hats to that panel discussion about as GPs and GP practices, we actually have to involve and we want to involve patients in the running of the practice that we hold regular groups, but also from the company's point of view, from Cognitive's point of view, there's no content we create without patients. So patients always should have a seat at the table. So that's what brought me to that conference. Okay. And yeah, it was lovely to, you know, I think there's, there's something very special about face-to-face and human-to-human interaction rather than virtual conferences. So it was quite exciting to be able to do that again. Who invited you? Who was it? Was it Somex? It wasn't Somex, actually. It was Ryan, one of the organisers. Okay. So I think Tim, my co-founder, went last year. He attended last year and then this year we were invited to be on the panel. So I went. And did you meet anybody that potentially, you know, like that could lead into an opportunity moving forward? I mean, I met you. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say, well, we're here today because <laughs> of that. You know, it was lovely to meet so many like-minded and inspirational people who are in this health tech space and doing great things. I met the Somex team, actually. That was yeah. the first time I met them and that was really, really nice. I'm really glad to have met them and they've asked me to do a one of their panel discussions in next week. Yeah. Oh yeah, I can't go to that. Oh no, shame. It's a women's health one. Yeah. So I'm gonna be doing that. So that was really good. I think just meeting like-minded individuals who want to drive forward digital innovation was just really exciting. It's funny how you went to Malta to meet people that actually don't live, you know, like in the grand scheme of things that far away from each other. But I think for our listeners. It is hard to know which conferences to attend. Sometimes you do have to take a risk. They're not all great. But I say to people, you know, like we make it great. So you can't just rely on the organisers. You have to kind of come and be ready to network. It can be quite nerve wracking, but just try to make the most of it, especially if you're abroad. I think so. The best part about the Malta conference was actually the people that I met and what's come out of it since, sort of like the relationships and the rapport that's come out of it afterwards. So I think if anyone ever has a chance to attend in person, definitely go. The Wired Health is a really good conference to go to. That's at the end of March and I always go to those. It's interesting. So your first foray into health tech was going to that Wired conference. And I would say I'm not in health tech, but I think going to the Malta conference is my first step into this world it's yeah it's really 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 interesting and I think going to a conference where you feel like I'm not sure if these are my people 
and then getting there and thinking oh yeah they are yeah it was really cool no it was I really enjoyed it so do you ever feel that there is a conflict of interest when you're in your NHS role and when you're in your business role was it quite easy to keep the two separate I think it is quite easy to keep them separate because for starters our platform isn't in every PCN or GP practice at the moment it's just in the e-consult practices and at the end of the day it's not about promoting it it's just if it's being used it's being used because it's a value to the clinician and the patients for example in my NHS role I do work for an e-consult practice and I end up using very frequently the platform that we've created basically as an adjunct to my consultation to send patients information about what we've discussed HRT is the classical one, or mental health. There's a lot of information that you have to impart in that 10-minute consultation that you don't often have enough time to do. Having a way to seamlessly share that with patients has been really, really helpful. But I don't think there's a conflict, no. I think when I'm wearing my medical director hat and I'm talking to NHS leaders and key decision makers and PCNs about incorporating Healthy Note, I actually have a real insight into what it's like to use it because I do use it in my NHS role. So if anything, that sort of is quite complimentary. Okay. And what's the vision? In 10 years' time, what are you guys hoping to have achieved? Oh, that's a good question. I think I'd be really happy if we thought about Cogniton and Healthy Note as the Netflix for health. If patients knew that they could go to Healthy Note for all their information and digital services to help with their health. And if doctors were using Healthy Note, just the same way that you prescribe medication, it's second nature. If you just, you know, use Healthy Note to send information prescriptions to your patients to really personalize their care, but also The idea of more automated personalization will come into it as well as we move from being, you know, a health and well-being service towards the software for a medical device. So that's with more two-way communication with patients. And that's really exciting at the moment that's going on. And I think when that happens, it will be great. Once we're integrated fully with clinical systems, the platform can analyze data from the electronic health record and from any data the patient's inputting. And then that will help to drive and inform clinical management. So if they have a slightly raised HbA1c, which is a diabetes marker of the diabetic control, automatically there could be content and services sent to them at that point as a notification to nudge their behavior and sort of say, perhaps have you done enough steps today? Or have you thought about switching your jacket potato for a salad or whatever it is? I think that's going to be really, really helpful in delivering the right information at the right time in the journey to actually impact behaviour change. This may sound like a really stupid question. The information you're talking about is probably already out there, but it's not written in a way that people may really want to read it and retain it. So I've got the flow up and the tone of voice and how that information is given to me is like a person. It's a little bit softer. It's just like somebody talking to me. And it's like, okay, so now you're interested in X. What is the tone of voice of your content? So the content we've created is non-medical jargon. It's in very simple terms. It's conversational. And also, obviously, where we've adapted it or where we've translated it, not only has the avatar been translated, the avatar has been adapted culturally as well. So in one of our programs, for example, that we've done, that we've co-created with West Berkshire ICP, that's around chronic kidney disease. And we've translated that into four different languages. And the avatars have all been adapted for those cultures, for the audience that it's serving. So we've translated it into Urdu. We've translated it into Nepali, into Punjabi and into Polish. And so it was actually a really nice program to do because obviously that's tackling health inequalities as well, because those are the hard to reach groups. 
So the tone, it, it very much depends on the audience. So for example, it's going to be different if it's in a different culture and a different language. But yes, it's basically kept at a reading level, if you imagine, but verbally or visually of nine or 10. And it's animated, it's interactive, it's short and snappy, it's memorable, it's impactful. You mentioned you've got four co-founders. What makes a good partnership? So I think trust, communication, obviously having regular check-ins. And if something doesn't feel right or you've got any apprehensions, you need to bring them up early and not let them fester. I think team days are really important. And so we try to do a really good job of that. In lockdown, we had to do um, virtual versions, but it was quite fun because our CTO is married to an amazing Japanese lady who makes great food. So we had a sushi making team day on, you know, the virtual screen. So I think, yeah, those are the things, you know, trust, communication, team days, and just being supportive of one another and flexible. I have a few different hats. I'm also a mother of two children and I'm a doctor and I have NHS commitments sometimes that I need to you know, balance. Some days I swap out my cognitive days for an NHS day because they're short and staff down the road and they need a locum cover. So I think that sort of flexibility is really important as well. So you mentioned you're growing. Have you experienced any growing pains? You'd feel happy to share. <laughs> yeah, growing pains. I was talking about this actually yesterday with our Director of Marketing and Partnerships. When you're like a small startup and there's only five or 10 of you, it is quite nice because it's intimate. It's sort of more informal in a way. I think as the team grows, even now, we have a team meeting every Monday at one o'clock and you can barely see everybody on the screen. There was five people and you could see them really clearly and you could see their expressions. And now you're sort of like squinting to see, you know, who's talking first of all, there's like 30 people on the screen. So obviously there's that challenge. I think we've been really lucky in that our hires have been really good. So we've got a really strong development team, an expanding content and medical writing team with a creative director. We've got great project management. We actually really do take our time with hiring because I think that's really important to get right. It has to be the right fit. And so far, everybody just fits really, really well. I don't think we've had any significant growing pains as such, but it will come, I'm sure. As you grow, things do change. So when you say you really take your time to hire and get it right, what's that process look like? So obviously the job description goes out. We get people both internally and from LinkedIn applying. They're obviously vetted by our COO. And then at the interview stage, there's a process of at least two interviews where they bring different members of the team, largely because people might be able to tick all the boxes, but that doesn't mean they're a cultural fit. So that's why it has to go through two or three different processes at the interview stage. I remember something you said actually earlier where somebody looked like they were really good, really gung-ho, and then you think, actually, not sure. So I think that there's definitely been times where we've interviewed and I've walked away thinking, oh, they're really good. And then you'll debrief afterwards and you'll think, huh, actually, they're probably a bit too, whatever, strong-minded or opinionated. It wouldn't quite fit. They're going to be working closely with this member of the team. How does that look in reality? And actually, then we've kind of unpicked it, debriefed it, dissected it, and actually thought no, and then started again, which is another reason that it can't just be one or two of us interviewing. There has to be a few of us to get different viewpoints, bring your own experience to how you think working with that person is going to be. What's your view on cultural fit or cultural ad? So someone said to me, if you only go for fit, you just attract more of what you've already got and they will fit in they won't yeah. cause any waves and it's all nice yeah. but you want somebody to add to your yeah. culture you want to bring something different in and I'd never of course you do yeah. I'd never really yeah. thought of it like that 
what's your view? I never just asked you that, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point. And I, I do agree that it's not when I say fit, I don't really mean they have to be like us kind of just mean that their work ethic and how they have conversations, how they come across their communication skills. But yeah, I think we're always looking for people that are dynamic and people that will think outside the box as well, because you need to be challenged. And I sometimes feel like I'm the one that's always challenging because I'm obviously coming from the clinician perspective on whatever we're talking about in terms of our products. But sometimes I feel like I push back quite a lot. I think that's good to push back because only then can you iterate and get the right product that's going to work out there. So you do need people to have a voice, have confidence in expressing that, but also to do it in the right tone. So people look at you, I look at you as a female entrepreneur, you're a medic, you've talked about your family, sounds like you've got a lovely husband, you're flown out to speak. (laughs) What advice would you give somebody like me that's looking at you thinking, how does she, I hate the question, how does she do it all? And that's not from a, like a mum and like somebody that works. It's just, what advice would you give to somebody that's wanting to forge their career? Well, I look at you and think very similar because I know you've got three kids as well. And I'm just like, how does she do it? (laughs) Um, So uh, that's interesting. I think it's not easy, right? So I'm not even going to sit there and pretend that it's easy. I mean, when you wear different hats, I think it's really hard to be the best version of yourself in all of those roles. And sometimes you feel like you're not hitting 100% in any of them, but you have to realize that you need support. You need a supportive environment, both from your professional and your personal life, I think, to make it work. I think you have to just believe in what you're doing and you have to carve out time for yourself. I think that's really important. And the other thing to remember is it's okay to fail. I think women in particular have more of a problem with failure than men do, if I'm allowed to say that. I I think there was a study done where they looked at girls in a classroom and boys, and only if girls were 100% sure of the answer to the question the teacher was asking, they'd put their hand up. Whereas with boys, it was like, they'd just go for it because of that fear of getting it wrong. And I think, you know, the advice I'd say is don't be afraid. I have to sometimes tell myself that as well. (laughs) But don't be afraid. It's okay to fail. Have a growth mindset. Whatever happens, you change, you iterate, you become better. There's a really good book I'm reading at the moment by um, Mati Saeed. I don't know if you've heard of it. Black Box Thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's been really interesting read. And that's just all about kind of how to have a growth mindset and learn from mistakes how do you do it all? You can't do it alone. You have to have help. So I think that's the key thing and a flexible working environment. So I think what I've got that's really nice now is from a cognitive perspective, they understand that I've got children to pick up. I obviously will pick them up when I need to, but then I'll work when I need to as well. I make sure all the things get done. But I think, yeah, it's it's about taking time out and making sure that you relax, you read, you exercise because otherwise you'll be blowing at full steam and you will run out of steam and burn out. So in regards to fear of failure, do you Mm. ever have, I suppose, like fear of changing your mind? Do you think that's linked to fear of failure? Maybe it is, yeah. I think it's fear of change. It's the idea of when you're used to doing something. I mean, I'm a Taurus, so I'm a terrible example because I hate change anyway. Um, But but then you add in that I'm a doctor and doctors are notorious for like, they don't do well with behavior change. They like to know what they're doing and it's done a certain way. So I think it's the idea that if you change something, it's the idea that it won't work and you won't know what to do and you won't know how to get over it. And I think some of that comes down to 
you have to try and become resilient with that because you will get knocked down and you just have to be persistent and get back up. And I think that's something actually that I've learned through this process of um, persistence. So sometimes you will reach out and reach out to people to collaborate with them as a client or a customer and you'll hear nothing back, nothing at all. And I would say keep trying because what I've learned is I've had to sometimes email the same person six or seven times and then I've got somewhere. So I think persistence is the key with that. I can't remember your question now. I've gone off on a tangent. <laughs> no, that's fine. I was asking around fear of changing your mind, but you just yeah. said something really interesting around yeah. persistence. When you said like you'll email somebody like six or seven times, like I would email you back straight away, even if so it was a no. <laughs> not everybody's like us. That's what I, that's what I, I really struggle with that. That's one of the things I struggle with. And I think someone once told me, my mentor many years ago said to me, Dewey, you've got really high expectations of yourself and that's great, but you also project that to other people and think that they're going to do what you would do and they don't. So you need to lower your expectation. I've been told that before. And yeah, I completely agree with you, but everyone works differently. I mean, yeah. it, I don't think it's even a question of they're being rude on purpose. I mean, some of them might, but no. I think it's more that they're so inundated, they just forget. And, yeah. and I actually had that, I actually inadvertently was that person to somebody else complete accident yeah. I was on holiday I got the email on my phone and I forgot to put out of office on so I read it but then I forgot about it I came back and then suddenly you know two months later I remembered this poor person had been trying to reach me <laughs> I emailed them back and I was sort of like profusely apologizing I'm so sorry I forgot to write back to you and you mentioned the importance of taking care of yourself and yeah. you know whilst we end up burning out have you ever been close to burnout not close to burnout, but definitely could see the trajectory with the way that general practice is going, etc. which is one of the reasons I went to the health tech conference seven years ago. I'm, I've always been the sort of worker that has tried to be highly efficient in anything I do. But what that means is I'm not even taking a second to breathe sometimes. So, you know, even for example, I'll be with a patient if they go outside the room to do a urine sample. I've got five minutes back, but that five minutes, I don't have a coffee. I'll be sitting there checking my blood results, checking not my blood results, other patients' blood results. I'll be, I'll be doing admin. <laughs> I'll be yeah. doing admin in that five minutes. Yeah. And so I always try to finish on time. But again, the same mentor said to me that you are going to burn out. You're running at a 12 out of 10, they said to me. And most people run at a six or a seven. You kind of want to be at a seven or an eight or a nine, but you don't want to be at a 12. So actually, that did force me to look at how I was managing my time and that I needed to delegate more and not micromanage so much and also not reply to every message and everything immediately. I think that definitely has helped me to kind of not burn out, if you like. And then the other thing is just the exercise and the healthy eating, going for a walk every day, getting an Apple phone or, or a Fitbit and watching my steps being more aware of that because it's very easy to just sit in front of the computer and get drowned in your work and I think it's really important to have that time away. And you mentioned you're a mum how many children do you have? I have two. So if you don't mind sharing we had a really interesting conversation where you shared your journey it was it around conceiving your second child would you be able to share? So I have an eight-year-old and I have an 18-month-old, but I had multiple miscarriages between baby one and baby two to the point where I didn't think I'd have another child. And that was a real struggle because I felt like I was failing at that. That was part of my, oh my gosh, every time I set my mind to something, I can do it. But here I'm not able to give my child a sibling, which is all that she wanted. That's all she's ever wanted. And that was really hard. 
but I persisted and I tried and I was very fortunate because it's not just about persistence as we know there's science there's luck there's you know good fortune and I did end up having Maya thanks to IVF so I'm happy to share that it was a real struggle. I think that was part of also one of the reasons I stepped away from three days a week of general practice, because that can be quite stressful. And actually, it was only when I stepped away that I then was able to have a pregnancy that didn't end in miscarriage and that I was able to see through to the end. So yeah, they were dark days. And actually, during the time that we set up the company, it was all during that period. So there was a lot of change at the same time happening, which was hard. Did you take time off, any significant time off during those periods? When I think about what I would advise my patients to do and what I did are completely different. So, of course, I would tell patients and and advise them, take as much time as you need, write a sick note, etc. I didn't take any time off for for any of them, um, any of my miscarriages. In fact, I went as far as to say that I was so determined not to let the GP practice down. Not that they would have been, they would have been very supportive, but I didn't want to feel like I was cancelling patients and making my peers work even harder to cover you know those patients that I'd be not seeing that I would schedule my DNC to my day off which actually I I say out loud I think oh my god there's so much wrong with what I just said I don't know why I didn't see it at the time but I I just didn't I just felt like I'll I'll manage And, and that was always on a Friday so I had the weekend to recover so that I'd be back at work on the Monday so no time off. I think it's really important you share because sometimes it's harder to conceive the first child And yes, it can be, but that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. And you can have a normal, natural birth the first time and struggle the second time. So I think it's really important that people hear that because I know somebody close Mm -hmm. to me that is going through Mm -hmm. that at the same time. And I think do as I say, not as I do. You need to take time out for yourself. Ultimately, you know, like your family and your life and your well-being. Work will come and go and it really does it no matter how tight it is to our identity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely agree with everything you just said. Secondary infertility or subfertility is actually more common than you think, but people just don't really talk about it because they feel guilty even bringing it up because they've got one child. So why should, you know, it feels like you're being selfish when there are people that don't have you know, any children maybe to even say, I'm, I'm struggling to get the second one. So I think there is definitely something around guilt for even feeling bad about you know having secondary infertility but yeah it's definitely more common and I've certainly encountered people that you know once I share my story then they share theirs and it's like oh right I'm not alone then and I certainly try and share that with patients I don't mind sharing personal sharing if it helps them it's all about the power of lived experiences and personal stories and helping other people to you know it's definitely made me a better I think a better GP because I can really understand what they're going through that helps knowing that you're not the only one Thank you. And my final question is, when it comes to the business of healthcare, what is one thing that has changed your view of how the system works now you're an entrepreneur? I think that in the healthcare ecosystem, all the stakeholders, and by all the stakeholders, I mean clinicians, healthcare providers, pharma companies, patients, they much more need to sit down together to tackle the problems of today. So as a doctor previously, doctors notoriously have a certain opinion about industry, about life sciences, about the pharma you know, companies. I've been on the other side of that now where I've worked closely with them and it's really not as black and white and they really are trying to do some good. And I feel like the NHS and industry need to actually work closer together because Only by working together can they solve all the problems, particularly when there's funding gaps. 
we just need to work together to solve some of these issues and really empower patients to better manage their health because if they do then actually every single stakeholder is benefited by people understanding more about their health and if people want to connect with you after this interview where is the best place to find you they can find me on linkedin in terms of our company email hello at cognizant.com but linkedin is probably a good bet and i will reply (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much you're welcome thank you for having me so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.